Good afternoon. You're listening to KYRS. Uh, you're also listening to Praxis. I'm your host, Taylor, and today I am live in the studio with a returning guest. You've been on before. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once or twice. Um, Curtis Robinson, who's the president of the NAACP, among other community roles. You've got a whole stack, so I thought I would lead with that one. Yeah, no, totally okay with that. We can just hang out there. Yeah, okay. Um, so we are here to talk about, you might have heard that this Saturday, uh, yes. uh, September 28th yep. from 10 to 2, yep. uh, over at Carl Maxey Center in mm-hmm. East Central will be the Black Prisoners Caucus Community Family and Community Summit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to let people know that's happening if they don't know and talk to you about what that is. So I guess we can back up. Do you want to just introduce yourself, talk a little bit about who you are, what you do, um, why this invent, event is something that's part of your life? Well, it's already feeling like an overwhelmingly long list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, uh, hi. Hello, everyone. Uh, Curtis Robinson, uh, current president of the Spokane chapter of the NAACP, chapter number 1137. Um, I have been the president uh, over here in Spokane since uh, 2017, and um uh, I also am engaged in multiple arenas uh, uh, throughout our local community. The reentry task force, you know, just to rattle off a few. Um, the uh, uh, oh gosh, what is it? The justice task force, right? That one that's been meeting about the whole issue of the new jail. Speaking of jails, and uh, the recently appointed by the governor's office to the hate crimes advisory group. Uh, for the attorney general's office and for the governor's office. Cool. So I guess what what brings you into criminal justice work other than, you know, being a man of color in this world and, <laughs> you know. Well, you already told me I can't cuss on the radio, so I would, you know, I'll try to tone it back a little bit. But, yeah, so, um, you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on here. Our, uh, our communities of color are disproportionately impacted uh, across Washington State, obviously in the United States, but more specifically here in the Pacific Northwest, Northwest across every arena that I've been able to dig into. I haven't seen uh, economically, uh, socially, uh, uh, criminal justice or uh, school disciplines where we're not disproportionately represented uh, in all arenas. We're either uh, underserved or overrepresented in every single arena. Yeah. So yeah. Can, you, can you talk a little bit just about, I guess, what Black Prisoners Caucus is and yeah. what this event is? Well, be? the Black Prisoners Caucus was um, founded in 1972, and it started out with workshops led by incarcerated men and extended into five uh, state correctional facilities in Washington State. And, and let me go ahead and make a correction there. It's actually uh, completely across Washington State. Uh, here locally has pretty much been, I think there's maybe one more uh, in eastern Washington, but the last holdouts. And so, you know, the whole reason, I think your question was, you know, the whole reason for getting involved was because, um, you know, this this is, uh, in in the criminal justice system, we're not known, our, or our local government and uh, Department of Corrections has not had longstanding reputation for being very humanizing. 
It's been very punitive. Um, and as the uh, communities of color are disproportionately represented within that system uh, and the disciplinary dynamics, so the dehumanization carries a whole lot of extra weight there uh, for our people. And so uh, the importance of having an organization like the Black Prisoners Caucus that, to DOC's credit, to Washington State's credit, is uh, um, approved uh, by that structure um, is really, you know, uh, uh, just ups the level of importance. Uh, the Black Prisoners Caucus, even though it carries that name, Black Prisoners Caucus, um, it is a caucusing group that's meant to uh, bring humanizing and uh, fellowshipping into the communities uh, within the uh, uh, within the uh, uh, incarceration system, and really give us a chance to uh, engage with each other in a very healthy and pro-social way, and create that pro-social atmosphere in a de- very dehumanizing system. Mm-hmm. So it's basically it's reaching outside of the prison structure, right? It's a place for for people who are trapped in that system at the moment mm-hmm. to connect with each other. But it also extends back to the families that are left behind in the community. Absolutely. Yes. And it reaches out while being inside. Right. So there's mm-hmm. that connectivity there. And we know that, that you know, pro-social and relationships and stuff like that is, is instrumental, essential uh, in helping our incarcerated human family come back into uh, um, uh, social productivity and healthiness. So, yeah, it, it does all that plus some. Yeah, I was reading there was some really interesting language on the website when I was reading it that talked about I could I could pull it up and read it but I'd have mm-hmm. to completely lose my train of thought uh, but um, it basically was talking about there was a phrase where they said the the communities that we are still a part of yeah even absolutely. while yes. we're incarcerated and that kind of I don't know if it completely blew my mind but I don't hear language like that a lot because the whole supposed point of prison is to take people out of the community but um, I don't know. I guess I just thought that framing was really interesting. It's like, no, I'm here, but I'm still part. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's part of the narrative, right? So that's part of the narrative that, uh, you know, uh, the general public is kind of accepted. And then those of us within the inside and many of us on the outside, too, um, you know, even though we have justice involved family, you know, we think, OK, well, now we're separated. Well, now they're there and they're this and they're that. And I'm over here. And it's like, no, you know, because at some point in time, I think, what is it about uh, 80, 90 percent of the people that have been incarcerated will eventually be released back into society. So that can it that connectivity is still there. If it's not happening right this minute, it's going to happen soon enough. And so, you know, when we're uh, actively engaged in preparing for that and doing so when, in a way that uh, uh, builds that healthy momentum uh, for our people uh, reentering back into society, then we have much uh, greater success with healthy outcomes that way. And, um, you know, the Black Prisoners Caucus really represents uh, the best ideas of some of that in action. Yeah. So I guess for for folks who maybe don't have someone close to them who's involved in the system, who's never been involved in the system themselves, what can you just kind of talk through? Like, what are the challenges of reentry and what does good reentry support look like? Well, it would, <laughs> that's glad you asked that because a lot of it does a lot of it looks like what we're not doing here. Right. And so we just have to own that. Right. So that's one of the reasons that the Black Prisoners Caucus uh, was formed. 
uh, and continues to grow because there is just such that need for uh, relational connectivity and preparation for um, uh, return back into society and, and keeping that connectivity uh, going in a healthy way while we are incarcerated. And the truth of the matter is we've not had a lot of great outcome success with that uh, here in Washington State and especially here in Spokane. And so, you know, when we start looking at what that what that needs to look like and what can look like, it's kind of undiscovered country for us and we're learning to figure out how to navigate that and when you take a look at the black prisoners caucus even though it carries the name black prisoners caucus i was going to touch on this earlier it's in, it's inclusive mm-hmm. right so everybody is welcome uh, uh regardless of race ethnicity um it's just that you know because it is a black prisoners caucus you know the primarily the uh like uh, because it operates under uh, robert's rules uh and uh, so the primary members of that uh, um, uh, uh, executive committee are, are going to be uh, black Americans, African Americans. Uh, but everybody has a everybody has a active role uh, in in uh, uh, what's going on uh, within the structure, within the institution itself, as well as the outside. Yeah. So as of now, I mean, say someone's been incarcerated for mm-hmm. 10 years, uh, they get out tomorrow. What does that look like? them oh yeah so yeah so when i mean without the black prisoners caucus and without programs like that uh and pro-social um activities and connectivity like that you know it looks very bleak um you know as a matter of fact i was just oh gosh what meeting was i i was in a meeting just uh i think oh yeah as a matter of fact it was uh, one of the justice task force subcommittees uh, meetings that we were having, and we were talking about reentry and how uh, many uh, human beings are coming out and they've done their time, but then when they when they get released, it's like, okay, great, hey, you did your time, and while you were in here, you didn't get much done other than hang out in your cell. No, you didn't get in much trouble, so we're going to let you out on time, maybe even a little early, but we don't have anything for you when you get out. Good luck, you know. And so that's that's you know, in a very demoralizing and very dehumanizing institution to come out back into society and face the natural challenges that regular human beings struggle with. Mm -hmm. Then you're dealing with somebody that's been in a situation like that for any sustained period of time. And it's just, well, gosh, no wonder our recidivism rates are so high. Mm -hmm. Because you can't vote right away for, or a lot of people believe that they can't. Right. There we go. I should correct that for myself and not, we can talk about that later, but, uh, I mean, housing, it's so hard. It's next to impossible to find housing in Spokane mm-hmm. as someone who doesn't have that check mark. Yeah, um, I think we have like a, what is it, 1.2%, mm-hmm. something like that, vacancy yeah. rate? Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. So it's, it's a crisis. like you said, the normal stresses of life plus another layer. Maybe you're someone who would have right. been discriminated against already, and yep. then it's this other layer of often legal. I know there's been some campaigns to change that, but legalized yeah. discrimination. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you deal with the, I mean, and there's been some great champions of that, you know, uh, 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 I did the time, um, I, that's, you know, that Spokane NAACP, uh, you know, Tenants Union, uh, Peace and Justice Action League, um, Smart Justice Spokane, you know, many of us have banded together, so, uh, Spokane Community Against Racism, you know, the Carl Maxey Center of the Black Lens, uh, many of us have come together and say, you know, okay, we have got to do something uh, active and restorative about what's happening in this harming and in an unjust system because basically the way our system has been operating it's you know it's justice for some and not for all and it really depends on your means and in many ways that means ends up taking place uh, uh and is is represented by the color of your skin 
and that's a tough thing. That's a tough thing for anybody to to deal with. But let alone when you're a uh, when you're a, a black American, uh, male or female, or questioning, um, which just adds a whole nother layer to an already ridiculous struggle. So when we come out. We're looking at uh, not only dealing with what's happened to us inside uh, in that institution, but also what that did to us inside, inside that mm-hmm. institution, right? And so there just hasn't really been a lot of uh, real or not, and not, oh, I, wanna, I, don't, I, I wanna kind of back up a little bit. I, I would say not enough uh, internal programming as far as our justice system to make sure that, that we are uh, capturing the opportunities that we have with our human beings while we're in there to really set them up for success because obviously if they were able to succeed in the way that society uh, uh, sees success, wouldn't be in there. And so we just have to own that that's a thing and help our fellow human beings and, and you know I don't mean to say fellow, but you know just help our human family. Uh, really understand that you know that's what's going on in there and we need to do something different and again the black sprinters caucus is a great step that way uh in in uh having that momentum so that when we hit the when we hit the door we don't hit the floor Mm -hmm. right so when we hit the street we're able to meet the challenges uh that we're already facing as human beings as well as dealing with the uh um the stuff that's going against us uh right off the gate yeah so it's like it's again it's almost like another inside outside split where we can do things advocacy things structural things like ban the box Mm -hmm. which we passed in the city which for those who don't know is basically removing that box that says have you been incarcerated from the application um still kind of working on pushing that even further i think um changing voting laws in certain states there's all of that structural stuff um and then I think there's probably another basket of like programs, like what you're involved in with reentry. And then there's kind of grassroots, like from inside things like Black Prisoners Caucus, trying to make sure that people actually get some rehabilitation yeah, while I, they're inside. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and what this really challenges is the, you know, the narrative of, and, and I just call it, you know, the criminalization of, of human beings, which dehumanizes them. And, you know, the reality is, is that there is a percentage of, uh, um, gosh, what is that word? Uh, what's that term? Uh, sociopaths, I guess, out there, you know, mm-hmm. and there, and that's a, it's a proven thing. It's scientific. It's evidence-based. But that's not the most of us. That's the few of us mm-hmm. in there. And so the rest of us are just human beings that just haven't got a lot of stuff figured out yet. And so we, we brush up against these, you know, against the system. And then we rail against that brushing up, and then we're punitized for brushing up against it. And then when we fail as far as recovering from whatever that Justice Evolve event is about, uh, then we're punished even more for that failure. And, you know, it's really just an opportunity to start taking a very serious look at, and all this conversation is, right? So all of the movements, you know, the... um, the legislation uh, uh, gains that we've had over the last years, which you rattled off, you know, legal financial obligations, uh, um, fair chance hiring acts. Uh, we're also taking a look at uh, working with the tenants union about how to also implement that as far as housing, because discrimination is happening there as well. And so, you know, it's a real opportunity for us to take a hard look at how popular it is, even amongst our own communities of color uh, to demonize and dehumanize people that don't act the way that we think they should. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's totally that same. Like if you want to get psychological, that punishment model, you yeah. know, it, it creates fear for everyone else. It's like, well, 
I must be, since I'm not being punished, like, I must be good. I must be a good, I must be better than, right? you know? And so we have to keep those other people, air quotes, I'm always doing air quotes on yeah, the radio, yeah, yeah. those other people <laughs> over here away from us mm-hmm. because it's contagious, you know, or, you know, this idea that that brush up against the system, I like the way you said that, mm-hmm. could somehow, you know, spread to... Right. And, you know, and that's that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, when we start taking a look at the fact that that's such a popular mindset, we also have to take a look at how we got here and where the, you know, I mean, just I mean, you can really take this back a long ways. And, you know, I've been actively engaged in doing that and helping kind of deconstruct how we got here, not only as a local community, but as an American society in in how we view um People that have a problem with the way that the system operates, you know, and the reality is that a lot of this, the way that the system operates is embedded with a whole lot of dehumanizing, dominant, misogynistic, sexistic, you know, and, you know, and that's been an intentional thing. And so, you know, as as human family, we have to really, and as Americans, you know, we have to really own that and realize that many of the things that have been, in, um, that were set in motion long ago are still in motion today. And so for us to start really kind of learning how to steer the Titanic, we've got to take a look at how our, how, how we set course on this trajectory anyway, and start doing course correction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you... Um point people to I guess like what's been what's been helpful resources for you in in learning more of that history and really like unpacking something that big well uh, we're doing uh, several things so you know one of the organizations we also work with is Greater Spokane Progress uh, that uh, you know is that is that coalition that conglomeration of uh, I think it's 40 different organizations that uh, we've been working with a Y Race Matters training uh, we've also been uh, doing implicit bias trainings with United Way and Accelerate Success. Um, we've also, uh, one of the boards that I sit on as well is Just Lead Washington, and they're the organization that came in and did the implicit bias training for about 350 system professionals about three years ago, I want to say. And, um, you know, so what it really is, is it's for people to understand that, you know, in, uh, implicit bias is a thing. Right. And so the human brain is operating. Uh, We receive about 11 million bits of information every given point in time and only 40 of it are we actually able to process consciously. And so when we're dealing with this with a a saturation effect that we're seeing white males be the heroes and white males stop the bad guy and white males do this. and white. I mean, we're, we're receiving that messaging and it's very clear. You know, and we also have to understand that even though that may not be uh, uh, overtly, uh, intentionally racist, the racist message is still there. And so we're still soaking that in at that same rate. And, uh, you know, now we're, you know, and if that's all we do, we go to work, we do our job. Uh, we see, you know, whatever, whatever we happen to be surrounded with at work. And then we go home and we f- turn on the TV and, hey, there's a white male and, hey, there's a white female. And, you know, and, and those are pre- predominantly the only ones we see. We're still absorbing that message at that rate. And so we have to be very intentional about understanding that that's what's going on, understanding that this thing that's been, uh, uh, and I'm going to use the word intentional again, that, that's a 
been a thing that's uh, generationally intentional. You know, we did not get here by accident. I've heard it said time and time again that the system is broken. No, the system's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do. Mm -hmm. And it's got those racist cores in it. And how do we start really come together as human family going, okay, yeah, that that happened and that's not okay. And what are we going to do about it instead of continuing to, you know, try to stick our fingers in our ears and go, no, 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 I don't see race. You know, Mm -hmm. no, we see it just fine. It's, you know, what are we doing about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to KYRS, you're listening to Praxis. I'm talking with Curtis Robinson about the Black Prisoners Caucus Family and Community Summit this Saturday, September 28th, 10 to 2, at the Carl Maxey Center over the on East The Open Coming Carl Maxey Center. <laughs> yes, the it's an early uh, event. I'm so excited for it to be completely Man. complete. But um, I guess just shifting gears to the event itself, hmm. who should come... What should they expect? Um, what what's going to be going on? There? Um, well, I, I I told you this when I came in today. I had my notes, <laughs> and I have my notes. Another, you know. So I mean, but you know, who should come is anyone should come, and everyone should come, and especially if you are a person that's trying to understand more. Uh, about not only the Black Prisoners Caucus, but also more about what's going on in our criminal justice system and the reason that uh, organizations like the Black prisoners caucus are so necessary and what they actually do because there's also been you know that thing we call it uh, the fragility right we call it the white fragility and you know it's like well why is it called black prisoners caucus well what does that mean you know it's like you know don't get stuck on the name mm-hmm. um and start throwing all of your you know your preconceptions on it um you know what people need to do is they need to come in and and it's really the thing about uh, um uh, when we, when it comes to uh, uh, deconstructing internalized oppression, right, and internalized racism, is you have to get out of your box. You have to get out of your comfort zone. And so when you ask, you know, who should come, everybody should come, right, and start learning to come together as human community, understand what's happened, understand what some people are doing about it, understand the healthy way that we're striving to do it, and understand that we need to all be working on stuff like this together. So everybody come on in and what they can expect uh, is they can expect uh, some very real and frank conversations about the struggles, about the triumphs, about the need for this uh, kind of work to continue, and how many people uh, uh, inside the system and their connected family outside the system uh, value uh, an organization like this and um, you know the need for it to continue to move forward and grow. Sweet. And so some of the stuff that's li- listed off in mm-hmm. terms of information uh, I think it would be cool to talk about more. Yeah, and you, you threw it out earlier, too. But um, one of the points on here is how to address LFOs and... Um, no cussing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> LFOs. No, not that. Yeah. <laughs> Make up your own acronyms. But um, could you talk a little bit about what those are? It's something get, that gets thrown out a lot. And I think it's an aspect of the system that a lot of people who haven't been involved have no idea about. Yeah, so I still am very much a student in this work, right? It's been the learning curve has been get in there and figure it out as you go along. So when I talk to people about uh, challenging themselves, I'm speaking from personal experience because even though I was a formerly incarcerated person uh, from 1984, was a formerly, I am a formerly incarcerated person uh, from 1984 through 1987. Um, I, uh, you know, have not experienced this uh, current evolution of legal financial obligations uh, because they weren't quite at this level that they have been for a sustained period of time. So when I, when I did my time, they were still 
probation and parole, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, hey, that's eliminated. Wow. So, um, and, you know, then we have a mass incarceration machine that's just got, you know, uh, millions of people in it. It's just ridiculous. But anyway, so legal financial obligations have been, you know, uh, uh, court-imposed uh, fines, uh, and it's and it's kind of like a like an array of things. So you have court imposed fines, you have um, DNA fines, uh, investigation fines. Um, you also have um, the victim uh, uh, restoration uh, fees as well, right? So it's just kind of that. That's kind of like the broad brush. But so when they're talking about legal financial obligations, they're pointing to those kinds of things. Um, and so when we're talking about the reforms in that, you know, one of the things that has just been ridiculous is regardless of how much income a person did or didn't have, um, their legal financial obligations would accrue at a ridiculous interest rate. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and, you know, please just uh, take the uh, caveat with that, you know, that I think it was before we got these ref- these uh, Washington State and local reforms, it was like 22, 21, 22%. It's the you know? only rate worse than student loans. Yeah, ma'am. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't even get me talk, start talking yeah. about student loans. Oh, I mean, no, there's a, there are more that. people, there are more people with a felony conviction now in operation throughout the United States than there are people with college degrees. Wow. Yeah. So basically, they have the system has found a way to offload the costs of investigating yourself onto the accused or the yeah. incarcerated person. You're paying for parts of your own prosecution, um, mm-hmm. and then that's accruing interest. You're working. Maybe you have a job in prison. I think a lot of folks who are defenders of the system will say, well, people can work while they're in. But it's like, depending yeah, like on your state, you can work for seven cents an hour yeah or, um, or a buck 50 if you're highlining mm-hmm. you know? yeah and and you also have da- daily expenses while you're incarcerated as right. well so well and that just brings up the issue you know again when we're talking about humanizing versus dehumanizing and the whole uh society okayness with the dehumanizing aspect of that's like you know how i mean number one <laughs> when we're all we're running all we're doing is running around looking for an excuse to catch somebody to punish them. It's like, uh, how's that working for us? Right. Cause last time I looked, we had a ridiculous prison population that most of it across the United States was built on profit and less on, uh, just causes. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but when we're talking about legal financial obligations, uh, you know, we, we are, there is that, that has been the, the tracked up until recent times for that ridiculous interest rate. And then, you know, which is basically the uh, uh, prison profiteering, mm-hmm. right? And so then um, the the thing that was just most striking, it just like smacked me right upside the head. It's like even even with the obvious piece that the person is incarcerated, the interest would still accrue. Not able to work, not able to go out and work, not able to work in prison, and yet the interest rate would still grow. Mm-hmm. And that was the battle for several years. It's like, how can you even act like that's okay, let alone continue that track for any amount of years? And so that's the kind of uh, stuff that we've been really pushing for reforms and have had some success. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be information about that. And then I'm assuming also resources for people to, I don't know if this is something that you can 
There's probably not sweet refinancing deals anywhere. <laughs> you know. Yeah, like, refinance yeah, your prison, your yeah, prison exactly. obligation, right? I mean, it's it's one of those things, and I mean, even for folks' families, and that's where it comes back to mm-hmm. family and community, because mm-hmm. perhaps your family can help you pay that off, but perhaps your family has a financial strain already, having lost, you know, a member to the system. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and you know the the thing that we've got to be real careful about with this is because you know, it's not we're not looking at populations that don't understand that they have done something that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Right? And we get that, right? But I can tell you from my own personal experience that what I needed because I was I was traumatized as a child, traumatized as a young adult, continued that track myself because that's all I knew. I absolutely needed a timeout, but what I did not need is I did not need to get abused and beaten up in the midst of that timeout and then get mm-hmm. punished because that happened. And that unfortunately has been the, the uh, general incarceration track that our uh, uh, United States has been operating in for far too long, and that's a, there's a reason that they call it the new Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, when, you know, we have an opportunity within these spaces to go ahead and capture people, start taking a look at the needs behind the Justice Evolve event and and start humanizing them and doing what we can do as being our fellow human beings keepers, because that's our real responsibility here in society, especially when we want to throw that thing around about being the best the best uh, country on the planet. Right. It's like, well, we really need to be the best country on the planet, you know, and not have 25 percent of the world's population, uh, but uh, not have 5 percent of the world's population and 25 percent of the world's prison population. You know, we need to do better and really manifest that thing that we say that we are, because I think the reality is, is that uh, most Americans pretty much get it because of the uh, media availability right now, that we are not that thing that we said that we are, that we like to try to believe that we are. Mm-hmm. We really need to own that and start moving towards uh, a greater manifestation of that uh, uh, core foundational truth that this country was built on. So when we start looking at things like this uh, summit event, you know, it's to uh, start giving and uh, not only let uh, our incarcerated community know that they are not alone, uh, but here's some options to also give the general public a way to also view and see that, hey, that media driven stereotype that you've been programmed with <laughs> at 11 million bits of unconscious information at any given point in second uh, is not really necessarily true. Mm-hmm. And it's being done in your name. You know, it's kind of a corollary to to racism. And I do a lot of work with white folks on yeah. racism and it's not serving the people who aren't who think that they're not part of the criminal justice system. Uh, it's being done on on their behalf. You know, it's like, oh, you're being protected by this system. And that's not doing those folks any favors either. It's like, do you want to be wielding this huge violence? Like, yeah, what's that doing to to you, too? You know, obviously, it's not they're not the primary victim of the of the system, but we're all harmed by doing that level of harm yeah, to well, each I, other. Absolutely, uh, Taylor. You and, and you and I agree on so much stuff. You know, I, I mean, there's just a, there's uh, one of the things that I've come up with uh, in the implicit bias trainings that uh, we've been pushing uh, over the last couple of years is that when we dehumanize, um, while dehumanizing Mm-hmm. We dehumanize ourselves because mm-hmm. we can look and see that you are a bipedal being, that you've got two eyes, two arms, two legs, you eat, you drink, you know, and da-da-da-da, you are operating. But yet somehow, some way, I treat you less than. Mm-hmm. 
And so when we do that to others, we're doing that to ourselves because on a, on a subconscious level, if not an overtly conscious one, we get that that's a, that's a human being right there. And so how we treat others is how we treat ourselves. And so no wonder we go home and we're, you know, got all this uh, ambiguous anxiety that we just can't really put a finger on, but we just feel bad. And then we're trying to do everything we can to feel good. And yet, meanwhile, those perpetuations are still in motion, right? And we're still kind of agreeing with it. One of the things that I've come up with is we may not agree with the philosophy of the system, but we agree with the payoff, right? So as long as I'm comfortable, sorry, mm-hmm. you know, and it's time to be uncomfortable because it's affecting all of us. This thing has just gotten way too out of hand and it's time for us to really just own and understand how we got here and how we need to start, like I said earlier, start shifting this Titanic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I was going to bring this up earlier. I assume kind of that people who are listening, maybe you're just driving and you happen to tune in and you have no idea. Um, I've never thought about this <laughs> right. before in your Welcome. life, but I think a lot of people who are who are tuned into the podcast or anything are are into this issue. But I think folks who haven't watched uh, Ava DuVernay's Thirteenth, right? It's still online. It's easy to find. Yep. And that if Netflix. you don't, if you bristle when someone says that the U.S. prison system is legalized slavery, you won't bristle anymore after you watch that film. I right. think lays out that Titanic history. Absolutely, yeah, without a doubt. And I mean, in anybody. Because I, when I started getting involved, uh, you know, and it was one of the things I had to personally own. It's like, gosh, I haven't been involved. And I knew. I suspected. I didn't want to consciously wrestle with it, but I knew it unconsciously. And that was one of the things I had to come to terms with. It's like I just wanted to keep my head down, get mine, and kind of move on and just be okay. And, hey, you're on your own. But I knew that by doing that, I was perpetuating a problem that I had been a victim of. And so that's also one of the things, too. It's like the more, you know, if we're not actively deconstructing what's been in motion here for a sustained period of time, then we are by default perpetuating. I may not be being directly racist to somebody, but if I'm not being intentionally counteractive, and in deconstructing uh, uh, in, uh, personal and institutional racism, then I am by default perpetuating it because that's what, unfortunately, many of the foundations of our, our of our uh, societal operation are based on. Mm-hmm. And so that is absolutely manifested in our criminal justice system, hence the disproportionality, right? Uh, what is it? I believe uh, 60 to 70 percent of the prison population are persons of color who... As as evidence has shown, number one, evidence has shown that prisons in any given community, bigger prisons, do not make us safer. There is no evidence out there whatsoever that says that, that confirms that or affirms that, period, mm-hmm. point blank, and let's start with that truth, mm-hmm. right? Uh, then we start looking at the fact that uh, uh, black Americans, African Americans do not commit crimes at any greater rate than their white counterparts, yet we will get anywhere from 20 to 30 to 50 percent longer sentences than they do. Why is that? You know, so when we start, and, and, and the reason I bring that up when you brought up the 13th is because that information is out there. But there again is that kind of that implicit thing, that privilege thing, right? So insulation from the impact, distance from the reality of the issue. It's like I can watch it on TV and I can read about it in a book, but unless I'm actually engaged in it, I don't have that visceral experience of it. And so that's what the things like this Black Prisoner Caucus Summit will help perpetuate that is, is you know, tearing down that stereotype and challenging that narrative and it's and it's well past time for that to happen Mm -hmm. yeah and if you're just joining us and you're like how do i go to this summit this sounds super interesting you can go uh saturday 
I keep thinking I'm going to mess it up, but I think I've nailed it so far. <laughs> yeah, you keep looking at me like, <laughs> you're Saturday, doing good, Taylor. <laughs> Saturday, September 28th from 10 to 2 at the Carl Maxey Center, mm-hmm. which is uh, on East 5th, not very far east. What's the cross street? Uh, it open on I think Facebook. Yeah, it's an over... 31, 3116 East 5th. Yeah, it's kind of like over there by the Thor uh, area, you know, over there by, uh, like, I think uh, it's between East Central and the Fred Meyer mm-hmm. on that fifth strip. Yep, yep, yep. And there's a great little place to eat over there, uh, Fresh Soul mm-hmm. uh, by, uh, 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 by uh, God, oh, man, Michael. Michael Brown. Michael Brown. Yeah, gosh, I was just talking Shout to Shout out to a soul food restaurant that vegetarians can eat at. Yeah, man. Yeah, the red beans are to die for. Mm-hmm. The red beans, I mean, it's all to die for, but I yeah. mean, that's just my favorite over there. So before or after, or maybe take a lunch break in the middle and you can cross over there. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so so there's all of, I mean, again, this list, we could talk about each of these for an hour, but um, I'm glad you talked about LFOs. Thank you, because that's, mm-hmm. um, I just think it's something that people don't think about until they do. And then they go, wow, this is awful. Um, but there's, they're going to have resources on overcoming some housing barriers. Uh, driver relicensing right. is a huge one, which I know is something that the Center for Justice actively um, engaged in working on actively yeah. supports. And yep. it's really great to see. I, I'm often here um, in the community building in the evenings and days that that program is running and just seeing people just in passing realize like yeah. oh i'm gonna get my license back you know because yeah. how many jobs can you not work if you don't have a driver's license right you know? and especially uh with our transit system being how it is which you know hey we've got one that's mm-hmm. that's good mm-hmm. right but it needs to be so much better and so and i know we're in the process of doing that and that's real hopeful uh and yet until that time you know we have that reality of that inertia that's that's been in uh, happening for a sustained period of time that's just got many of our people that actually have served their time uh, and for lack of a better terminology paid their penance uh, are ready to get back in the mix and do so in a uh, in as healthy a way as they can figure out and then they run into that barrier mm-hmm. right their license expired while they were in jail or something you know uh, they couldn't pay the fines you know so you know again it's the it's the popularization of criminalizing human beings that just don't get it the way that we think they should and you know how do we start really kind of coming together as a local community and embracing that reality that that's the thing and we also uh, uh, wrestling with the truth of like hey this has been in motion for a long time and we actually owe it like yeah and I love that you did this Taylor is we owe it to ourselves mm-hmm. and each other right to just do better yeah yeah um, so I guess I'm curious to know a little bit more about the work that you do in reentry, uh, mm. in supporting reentry, and what um, what models. I mean, we've been talking about with the caucuses, <clears throat> we've been talking about this kind of wraparound idea. But um, what are some of the things that that we know work that we could pour support into as a community? Well, um, you know, I have been so engaged these last several years because I I had to hit the ground running. And uh, when I when I came into Spokane, it's like, whoa, this is what's going on. It's like, oh, my God. So um, it was like, you know, uh, it's been a huge learning curve and it is still in motion with me today. So, um, you know, I've had to jump from level to level to level. And as I like to say in this, as I as I really got into this dance, new level, different devil. 
right? So <laughs> there's just been a new challenge every step of the way. And, you know, so most of the, when, when I think about, you know, what people can really do is they can be willing to challenge their comfort zones, you know, challenge their, uh, their ability to feel safe in their narrative and realize that their narrative is part of the problem because of where that narrative came from. And with that will come, you know, some, uh, some very engaging, uh, um, uh, uh, uh interactions, um, in some areas in, in human community that maybe they haven't necessarily been involved with before. So when we start taking that and looking at reentry, I myself have been trained as a peer support specialist, a reentry specialist, a recovery coach, a veterans recovery coach, and just taking it everywhere I can get it because I know that I've got a lot. Number one, I've got a lot to learn. And, you know, uh, like a Pastor Danny Green uh, with uh, uh, Family Faith Community Church and Celebrate Recovery said when I first got down here and got involved is if you're not growing, you're dying. Right. And that's and that's a physics thing. Right. If we're not moving forward, then we're moving backward because things are constantly in motion. So um, I made sure to be very intentional about uh, engaging intentionally in that and leaning into the challenges instead of letting the challenges overtake me or running off and doing my own thing, because that was part of my problem. Right. And so therefore, I felt responsible for that. So I've been very intentional about challenging that pretty much every step of the way. And I've encountered a lot of pushback uh, internally and externally. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, so it's it's getting that kind of training. So like one of the things uh, I was just talking with some folks earlier at uh, uh, Revive Reentry and I did the time about, uh, you know, reflective listening um, uh, and um, that that's a thing. You know, are we listening with the intent to respond or are we listening with the intent to understand and are we allowing that conversation to be uh, determined by the person that we're supposedly listening to or are we trying to guide them and direct them and can and therefore by hence control them right or are we really just sitting in genuine space and in fellowship and in uh, a camaraderie uh, with that individual and really trying to understand them and experience them as uh, you know the individual unique and, and wonderful human being that they are and so when we kind of come at things from that angle, you know, the opportunities to engage are far and wide because they're really out there. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I got to go to the uh, opening of Peer Support uh, the other day. Uh, Georgia Butler, uh, right over there off of, I believe it's off of First Avenue, is a great new program up and coming. Uh, they're doing, a, a, you know, Georgia's always done a lot of real wonderful work with the uh, a Recovery Cafe uh, and uh, um, um, a recovery coaching here in our local Spokane community and continues that work now over there with uh, peer support. So, um, you know, when, when we, for, for me myself, it's, 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 I've had to kind of modify that because at first it was being involved because I'm also in recovery, right? Drug and alcohol, abstinence, recovery. I've got 15 years clean and sober. Woo-hoo! Nice. Yeah. That's a- yeah, year 15 has just been wild. <laughs> but, um, you know, so it, it but there's there's been that thing about, you know, always giving back and pouring back into the community. Right. And that's not necessarily the American way. Right. The Americans mm-hmm. get yours while you can, you know, mm-hmm. and then go retire. Right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, but what if by doing that, you're perpetuating a problem that, you know, inherently exists. So, you know, it's like now how do we as human family 
get to hold the duality of both. How do we give back and yet at the same time gain by our giving back? Mm -hmm. And so when we start taking that model and looking at uh, recovery and reentry, there's just a whole lot of stuff we can do. You know, we used evidence-based practices, uh, uh, reflective listening. Um, We use uh, stewardship models. Uh, We also use that uh, recovery is a process. My recovery is going to be different than your recovery, but it's still recovery, right? Mm -hmm. Harm reduction. And that's been an evolution that's really just started to come to come to the forefront of things, but it's evidence based because hey, it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so there's so many places we could go from there. Sure. But I think um, something I guess I'm really curious about, and this doesn't have to be as uh, a representative of a certain organization or anything like that. This can just be as you, if you're uh, comfortable with that. I'm really uh, curious about what you see the the future of this system looking like like are you an abolitionist are you somewhere on that spectrum what do you think if we if we think about like 15 years from now we do all this work what does our criminal justice system look like well i could tell you for sure it's absolutely got to change you know how we are doing stuff is just it cannot it cannot stand and it must not. And we must not be profiting off the dysfunctionality uh, organically or non-organically of our fellow human beings. I mean, we can't do that, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's harmful. It's oppressive. Uh, and that's, you know, pretty much the same model that, you know, unfortunately, some of the foundations of this country are built on. You know, while all the while uh, uh, postulating these great ideals, and they are great ideas, they're wonderful ideas. I mean, it makes me want to cry when you think about, you know, freedom for all men, you know, but uh, like we were talking about in uh, the Why Race Matters workshop uh, that we did on Friday uh, over at um, uh, Whitworth U District, uh, was that, uh, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, we have like this this kind of weird anxiety because we've never been what we what we say that we are and we get that right if we don't consciously get that we get that unconsciously mm-hmm. and so when you start looking at how incarceration has manifested now and how we deal with stewardship with our human population our human family you know we have absolutely got to do things different and i don't believe that there's anywhere along the line that when we do so up to its upteenth manifestation that uh, our incarceration system will, number one, be in a, called an incarceration system and look anything like what we've got uh, operating here right now. I, I just don't see it because when you start looking at, um, you know, uh, loving your fellow human being, and, and you know, so I come at things from a predominantly uh, Judeo-Christian uh, foundation, right? So in, 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 the, in, in some of those tenets, says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, you know what they say is that if you don't love yourself, your neighbor's in trouble. And guess what? Our neighbor's in trouble, mm-hmm. right? So when we start really learning how to love our neighbor and love ourselves, it's not going to look anything like what we got going on right now. So in that context, I'm absolutely uh, for abolishing the system the way it currently exists because there's just there's 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 no goodness, no reality, no healthiness, and no. Uh, a societal productivity in it unless you're just some of the uh, elite who are benefiting off the backs of the poor which hey guess what oppression is mm-hmm. yeah exactly and then so how does that maybe it's obvious but how does that um, roll back into this idea that the county once again has that they've brought back from the dead from 2011 <laughs> to build a new jail resurrected oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, you mean the concept of the new jail, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, I mean, we're taking a look at that. And, you know, what we're really striving to do is just, uh, you know, develop that broader understanding of just some of the things that we've unpacked here in this very short period of time. It's how we got here as community, as society, as, uh, as Spokane. And, you know, basically what we are doing with uh, populations that uh, are really crying out for help. Uh, and they're just doing so in a way that just makes us kind of tilt our head and go, it's not kind of okay, you know, and how do we actually wrap around that and embrace that? And so, uh, you know, and, and that reality going up against the narrative of the popularization of criminalizing human beings, because the reality is, and, and, and I've talked with, I've talked with, uh, uh, superintendent Sparber, I've talked with, uh, the mayor, I've talked with the commissioners and they understand that we cannot do things the way that we've been doing them. And they understand that people like us and, 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 uh, <clears throat> organizations like ourselves won't stand for it and 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 internally and 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 i believe so externally neither will they right so it's like how do we how do we wrestle with that yet also have a place like this is what we can do right the reality of it the facts of it this is what we can do as society right now while we try to figure out how to do things better and the and the truth of the matter is is you know with the i think it was uh, 13 deaths in that jail since 2015 Mm-hmm. Um, something like that yeah we can't do that you know we oh we owe it to ourselves i mean you know so there's also this issue of conversations on both sides of the badge right and that's how i've coined it um <clears throat> because i'm also on that uh, initiative i-940 de-escalate washington community stakeholder group for the criminal justice training commission Woo, got that out wow yeah that was a <laughs> i'm impressed that was a yeah, I was impressed with that too. Yeah. It's like most of the time I'm tripping over my tongue on that one. Uh, but you know, uh, you know, the 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 truth of the matter is, is that with the, and and I had brute here, and this is just great. I had I've been having this conversation that's come up in the last several weeks, really articulated in this way. Is that accountability? You know, I mean, when I'm raising a child, and this is kind of paternalistic, but I think it's a human thing, and so I'm I'm good with saying it this way. Um, is that you know when when you're 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 raising me, and you know, and I'm growing and developing and understanding and an ability to be impactful and effective uh, in dealing with the uh, environment um, and relationships with, uh, you know, uh, my, uh, the rest of my human family, that if I don't have consequences for some of my behaviors, then I'm not really feeling cared for. Because if you let me go up and put my hand on the burning stove, right, and you just let me burn myself. Well, there's my consequence, but you knew that if I put my hand on that, I was going to burn myself and you did nothing. I'm not going to feel real cared for by you. And that's just truth, mm-hmm. right? So how do we own that and do so in a way that is restorative and inviting uh, to, to our human family and instead of this way that is puni- uh, punitive and punishing? I'm going to hit you with this one, too. It's like, so... Uh, uh, um, Oh my gosh! If I can pull it out, it's gonna come on, come on, get out of my <laughs> mind. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, it'll come back. Let's see. No okay. love, love without. Um, nope, it'll come back later. Uh, but basically, you know, it's like how do we, how do we really kind of care for each other in the way that is is uh, loving and restorative, instead of um, instead of condemning and punishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and well, so we have to look at our new jail that way. Okay, that, Tied yeah, it no, 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 it's fine. We've just got a few minutes left, oh. and I wanted to ask you. Um, this is a pretty bleak. I think a lot of the topics on this show tend to be pretty bleak. The world is not awesome right now, 
in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But what's giving you hope in this work lately? Well, the fact that we're having this conversation, right? So that we're having a conversation about that there's just not a new jail being built, right? If we just even take that one and kind of isolate that, right? That, um, you know, that there's conversation about it, that human community, Spokane community understands, hey, you, that, that we're doing something wrong if that's our outcome over and over and over again. And we need to do better and people understand and they're willing to figure out what it means to do better. Um, you know, with the uh, Department of Corrections, you know, and their, uh, their acceptance of the Black Prisoners Caucus in operation within that system, they understand that, you know, this works and we need to do this and we need to learn to do more of this and do better. You know, as I continue to lean into this kind of work and run into the challenges, and sometimes it, it seems real bleak, you know, but I get these moments of hope uh, where I encounter our human beings on both sides of the issue, on both sides of the badge, on both sides of the law, on both sides of the system, you know, and, and sometimes it's kind of octagonal, right? You know, mm-hmm. multiple sides of it. But, you know, we're all kind of looking for that same thing. It's like we want to feel good about what we're doing here. We want to feel good about what we did today and, and the legacy that we're leaving for the generations coming up behind us. You know, and, you know, and it's been one of the scenes, you know, we can, we will, we must move forward in this together and it's time Mm -hmm. and so you know sometimes when it gets real bleak i just grab onto that saying and that hope and that is the rudder that i steer by no matter what's right in front of me and most of the time nine times out of ten it carves a path into a better understanding and and stronger relationships uh with many people who i would i would have considered uh long before uh as uh enemies yeah absolutely yeah well, thank you. And I guess one more time for people who just tuned in, can you share the details of this Black Prisoners Caucus Community Family Summit this oh, weekend? The, the Black Prisoners Caucus uh, Community Family Summit, uh, <laughs> September 28th from 10 to 2 p.m. at the up-and-coming Carl Maxey Center located at, I don't know, have the address? 3116 East 5th. See, we can, we can divvy it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a computer. You can't see the computer screen, but yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, awesome. Well, Curtis, thank you so much mm-hmm. for your time and for all the work you do, um, your comradeship in the struggle and all of yes, that. Same. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted to throw out before we go off the air, if you happen to be in downtown Spokane right now and you are a um, friend, fellow activist of uh, Alfredo Yamedo, mm. um Mm-hmm. He yeah, um, he's been on the show a couple times. I'm mm. going to repost some episodes featuring his important voice. Uh, he passed away this past Sunday, yep. and yep. his family is hosting a candlelight vigil over at uh. City Hall starting in about five minutes, going mm. up until council starts. Uh, it's going to be a remembrance of him and all the amazing work that he did at Camp Hope with homelessness with yeah. folks in recovery all over the map these yeah. last years. So, miss your brother. Yep. Yeah. So, thank you for coming mm. on here with me, Curtis. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to Praxis on KYRS, Thin Air Community Radio, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM.